0: This morning, we're going to be beginning a new series called God's Design for the Church, and we're going to be studying how God has structured His church in being elder-led, deacon-served, and congregationally governed. And we're going to look at all of these aspects over the next couple weeks, one at a time, And so this is not going to be your typical sermon where I go through one passage of scripture, but instead we're going to be jumping around a bit, looking at specific texts that provide the biblical grounds for what we're talking about. All right, so let's first look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 7. The saying is trustworthy, into a snare of the devil. All right, and let's also look at Titus chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verse 5 to 9. And Paul is speaking to Titus here. This is why I, Paul, left you, Titus, in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order "'upright, holy, and disciplined. "'He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught "'so that he may be able to give instruction "'in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those "'who contradict it.'" This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at your word this morning and consider how you have structured the leadership of your church we pray that you would teach us. Help us to conform to what you have said in your word. Not hold on to what we have known or what is most comfortable. Help those this morning who have a hard time with change. Help them to see these things in your word clearly and that they would have confidence and trust in you. Lead us as we desire to be a church grounded in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I love being a part of this church. I am grateful to be here. And as your pastor and and one of the leaders here, there will be times when I recommend that we do things a bit differently. My hope and prayer is that when I do this, it's in line with what is taught in the Bible and that it's necessary. For those of you who have been at Calvary for as long as I've been the pastor, know uh, that I've been leading the church in this direction. It should not come as a surprise to you. When I was interviewed by the deacons and members of this church, one of the primary concerns I had was that there was not a plurality of elders leading this church. In fact, I told the deacons that I would not even consider being a pastoral candidate if they were not open to eventually installing elders here. And the reasoning for this is that this is a clear black and white teaching that we see in the New Testament. Elders are essential in order to have a healthy church. And so the main point for the sermon this morning is this. God gives elders to the church to exemplify Christ-like lives while teaching, shepherding, and leading God gives elders to the church to exemplify Christ-like lives while teaching, shepherding, and leading. I hope as we study God's word this morning that you see the importance of having a plurality of elders and that you understand what the qualifications are and what the roles and responsibilities of an elder are. It's a common misconception that Baptist churches have always been a single pastor led with a deacon body. Historically, Baptist churches have had a plurality of elders. The 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith recognized both a plurality of elders and a plurality of deacons. Charles Spurgeon's church, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, had a plurality of elders and a plurality of deacons. And the first president of the SBC, W.B. Johnson, said that the plurality of elders is of great importance for the edification of the flock. But over the last 120 years, the popular leadership model in Baptist circles has been a single pastor supported by multiple deacons, which is what our current leadership structure looks like. And as a church, we should be seeking to follow scripture in everything that we do. And that includes how we structure the church. And so through this series, we will see that the Bible teaches that churches should be congregationally governed, yet led by a plurality of elders who are able to devote themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer because the deacons serve the physical needs of the church. We should be seeking to be faithful to all that God has said in his word, even if that means we need to change. Even if that means we are humbled. Even if that means our roles change. I know change can be hard, but sometimes change is necessary. And in this instance, I believe as your pastor, it is necessary as we strive toward a place of greater faithfulness to God's word, I believe that that's where true security and health will be. So what does it mean to be a church that is elder led? We live in a time where people are skeptical of any type of authority. I'm sure many of you here this morning have been in situations, possibly in the church, that have led you to question authority. Words like obedience and submission are trigger words in our culture today and to some in the church. Yes, there there are some people who just trust the leadership to do what is right, and yet there are others who are skeptical of any type of authority in the church, most likely because of the, the abuses that they've seen or experienced. That's why clearly defining structure is important. That's why clearly defining our words is important. In the New Testament, God has authorized two offices in the local church, the office of elders and the office of deacons. Elders focus on the direction and the spiritual needs of the congregation, and the deacons serve the physical needs of the church. Now, when I mention that word elders, or maybe, as you saw on uh, social media, that that title, What is an Elder-Led Church? Maybe some fears crept into your mind of a type of leadership structure in which the congregation has no voice or maybe of overbearing leaders who who pry into mundane personal decisions and place demands on members outside the parameters of church ministry. That is not what I am advocating for. Spiritual leaders are not allowed to manipulate or control the flock of God lording over people is forbidden. We see that in 1 Peter chapter 5. Some Christians argue that elders are called to rule. And the congregation's responsibility, they say, is to only and always submit to them. This position is called elder rule, and that's not what we're talking about either. Okay, so what is an elder? An elder is simply a man that exemplifies Christ-like character and who is able to lead God's people by teaching them God's word in a way that benefits them spiritually. In the New Testament, we have the words elder, shepherd, pastor, bishop, and overseer. And these words are used interchangeably to refer to the same office. In Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul calls the elders of the Ephesian church together, and he tells them to be on guard for themselves and for all of the flock, among whom the Holy Spirit has called them to be overseers. So you have elders and now overseers, and then he tells them to shepherd the flock. Those words are used interchangeably. We see the same thing in Titus chapter 1 and in 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter exhorts the elders elders, as a fellow elder, and then he speaks to them, and he tells them to shepherd, or pastor, the flock of God that is among them and serve as overseers. So a pastor is an elder, and an elder is a pastor, and... A pastor is an overseer, and an overseer is a pastor. Do you get the point? Those terms all refer to the same office. And then when we study the New Testament, we see that every church had a plurality of elders. There's no example of a New Testament church where there was only one elder or pastor leading a congregation. Five New Testament authors refer to the office of elder a total of 20 times. In Titus chapter 1, Paul leaves Titus in Crete so that the elders, plural, would be appointed in every town. In the greeting section of Philippians, Paul specifically mentions the overseers, plural, and the deacons, plural, of the church at Philippi. In Acts chapter 20, Paul calls on the Ephesian elders, plural. In James chapter 5, James tells anyone who is sick should call on the elders, plural, so that they can come and pray for them. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter exhorts the elders, plural. James, Peter, Paul, and Luke refer to the office of elder in the church and each of them presumed a plurality of elders per congregation. So we see a plurality of elders all throughout the New Testament. We also see that the, uh, the office of elder is reserved only for men. The word is very clear on this. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 to 14, the Apostle Paul says that women are not permitted to teach or exercise authority over a man. And this isn't some sort of cultural concept that was true of back then and it's not true now. Paul grounds his argument in the order of creation, the way in which God has designed us. And so the pastorate is reserved for only qualified men, not all men, but only those who meet certain qualifications to serve as elders. And so that should lead us to ask what type of men are qualified to serve the role of elder? We see these qualifications in the text that we've just read. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. And the first thing we see there is that an elder must have a desire to elder. He must aspire to that office. 1 Timothy 3 1 says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder or pastor or bishop, he desires a noble task. So Paul wants to make clear that those who are are chosen to serve should want to serve. They shouldn't be an elder unless they desire it. And yet desiring to do it is not enough. There are certain qualifications that they need to meet. And so you may be sitting here this morning and saying, well, I don't aspire to be an elder, so why should I listen to the sermon? Well, D.A. Carson has said the remarkable thing about the character traits for an elder overseer is that they're actually really unremarkable. They're unremarkable. And what he meant was that other than the qualification of being able to teach, if you look at these character qualifications listed, they're expected of every Christian. You can find exhortations for Christians to meet these qualifications in other portions of Scripture. And so elders aren't called to higher standards of Christian living. And so what this teaches us is that an elder is someone who exemplifies the Christian character that we would want anyone in this room to have. Elders are to be examples to the flock. And so as we go through these qualifications, you have to be thinking two things. One, who are the men in this church who live out and meet these qualifications? And then two, are these characteristics present in my life? And so the next qualification we see here is that he must be above reproach. We see this in 1 Timothy uh, 3, verse 2 in Titus 1.6. To to be above reproach means to live a life of godliness or Christlikeness that's visible, visible to others around you, to those in the church and to those outside the church. He, He lives in a way that doesn't allow for others to think badly about the church or the Lord. But this doesn't mean that an elder must be without sin. If that were the case, then no man can serve as an elder or pastor. In fact, the Apostle John says that those who claim to be without sin don't know the truth. So not only are the fruits of the Spirit and the other qualifications listed below evident in their lives, but when they sin, they confess and repent openly. And so as we study this list, besides the qualification to be able to teach, we see what this list is doing. It's expanding on what being above reproach is. The qualifications for an elder here are more focused on character than gifting, on who a person is more than what he does Next on the list we see that he must be the husband of one wife 1 Timothy 3:2 and Titus 1:6 In a day where we hear more stories of moral failure within the church it's important that elders set the example of faithfulness and devotion in their marriages He must be the husband of one wife Now, there are many ways that that people interpret this verse, though. They vary from an elder must be a married man, to he must not be a polygamist, to he must not be remarried, to he must not be divorced. But all of these interpretations overlook the central point of all of these qualifications. What the question is, is can this person serve as an example to us in the area area of marriage and family. The passage says nothing about divorce. And from what we know, Paul, if he wanted to mention it, would have mentioned it. And if you want to be fully literal here, then you would have to conclude that a single person would be disqualified to be an elder. And that would include Paul. It would, he would, it would uh, include Jesus and possibly Timothy. Timothy. Would all be disqualified. And if we continue with that logic, then a married person with less than two children would be disqualified, because both 1 Timothy and Titus 1 mention the elder's relationship to his children, plural. We don't see other qualifications in the same way that sometimes Christians approach this specific qualification No one argues that someone who got drunk in college one time is permanently disqualified or someone who struggled with their temper for a while. Rather, we are to look at that person's present character. All our sins, pre- and post-conversion, are equally forgiven. But that's not the issue. The issue here is, can this person serve as an example as they are today? So in a better, more literal translation for this verse is that an elder overseer is a one-woman man. That's what the Greek is talking about. There, There must be no other woman in his life in which he relates to intimately, whether emotionally or physically, than his wife. And so if a man is currently faithful to his wife, being above reproach and has proven himself in that relationship, then it is possible for him to become an elder candidate. He must be a one-woman man. Next, he must be sober-minded, 1 Timothy 3:2. He must be able to think clearly, to think biblically. He must be self-controlled, 1 Timothy 3:2 and Titus 1:8. Elders must be disciplined. They don't act rashly or impulsively. They have learned patience and are living lives characterized by order or self-controlled. He must be respectable, 1 Timothy 3:2. He must have the respect of others even before he has an office in the church. He must be hospitable. 1 Timothy 3:2 and Titus 1:8. An elder's life and home must be open to others. They welcome strangers and include outsiders. They share their lives and their gifts with others. Because if an elder is to get to know people and invest in their lives and shepherd them, he must take time to build relationships with them. Next, he must be able to teach. 1 Timothy 3.2 and Titus 1-9, because the ministry of the word is central to the calling of a pastor, elder, he must be able to teach the truths of scripture in a way that is understood by the church, able to teach. There's a difference between wanting to teach and able to teach. Uh, In my seminary class the other day, my professor shared a story about a young man who really wanted to be a pastor. And so he was asking the Lord for a sign, which you shouldn't do, okay? Asking the Lord for a sign. Read the Bible, okay? But he was asking the Lord for a sign, and one day he looked up into the sky, and he saw a crop-dusting plane flying overhead, flying over the cotton fields, and written in the sky were the words P.C. And so this young man took this to be a sign from God that he needs to preach Christ, And so he went to his pastor, and he told him this story. And the pastor provided the young man an opportunity to preach in the church the next Sunday. And after his sermon, the pastor walked up to the young man and said, Sorry, son, you were mistaken. When you saw in the sky the letters PC, God must have meant that he wants you to pick cotton. So I use that funny illustration to say that just because someone wants to teach doesn't make them able to teach. Willing to teach is not the qualification. You must be able to teach the truth of God's word in a way in which people understand. And this is one of the only qualifications that has to do with gifting. And it distinguishes elders from deacons. Not saying that deacons cannot teach, only that being able to teach is a requirement for the office of elder. And this doesn't mean that all elders are required to preach on Sunday morning, but they need to be able to rightly handle the Word of God, meaning he knows biblical doctrine well enough to be able to explain it to, clearly to people and to know it well enough to be able to call out false doctrine. right We read this earlier, look at Titus 1, nine again. Paul writes, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So to be able to teach sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it, meaning they would recognize what, is, or what are the things that are contradicting it. So while elders don't have to preach on a Sunday morning, they should be involved in some kind of, of public teaching ministry because it would seem odd for Paul to require elders to be able to teach and then some of them not involved in teaching. And so how are, what are some areas in which elders teach? Well, they teach by leading the meetings of the church. They teach by how they give announcements and and read the scriptures. They teach by how they pray aloud in public. They teach as they lead Sunday school in their one-on-one conversations. They teach in small groups and Bible studies. Through doing this, they equip the saints for the work of ministry. And they also protect the church from false teaching. So that's the requirement. He must be able to teach. And then next, we have a series of negative characteristics that an elder should not be, starting with him not being a drunkard, 1 Timothy 3.3 and Titus 1.7. So while drinking alcohol is not forbidden, if a man gets drunk, it shows that he lacks self-control and discipline. Paul didn't say it was wrong to drink alcohol. He told Timothy to have a little wine with his stomach problems. But what Paul is getting at here is the abuse. The abuse of alcohol, the abuse of any substance would disqualify a man to be an elder. Next, he must not be violent or quarrelsome or quick-tempered. 1 Timothy 3.3 and Titus 1.7. An elder cannot be easily angered or always out there looking for a fight. Because ministering to people in, in the midst of their temptations and failures requires immense patience instead of being violent Paul says he should be gentle he should be a peacemaker he must not be a lover of money first Timothy 3 3 and Titus 1 7 the heart is easily captivated by worldly treasures and leaders who love money are prone to be discontent. They're prone to steward God's resources in a bad way. He should not be a lover of money. And then now Paul shifts back to the positive, and then he focuses in on the the home life of a man. He says in 1 Timothy 3, verses 4 and 5, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? We also see this qualification in Titus 1.6. But simply put, if an elder cannot lead in his home, he's not going to be able to lead in the church. So he must sacrificially love his wife as Christ loved the church. His wife must respectfully submit to his leadership and his children must be generally respectful and obedient. Now now in Titus chapter 1 verse 6 some translators translate the Greek word pistos to believers. So most of our bibles say and his children are believers. But a more accurate translation of that Greek word in this instance would be faithful. Faithful to their father because it seems unlikely that the Apostle Paul would require something a father can't control. The Bible teaches that salvation is of the Lord, and that those who believe in Jesus believe because God has regenerated their hearts. A father cannot do that. Even if a father brings up his children in training and instruction in the Lord, there's, there's no guarantee that his child is going to be a believer. And so when considering potential elder candidates, look at their relationship with their wives and how they interact with their children. Are their children submissive and faithful to their father? Now, this does not mean that their children are always a model for others. Uh, They are sinners just like us and at times will rebel. And so rebellion in the life of a child does not disqualify a man to be an elder, but how they handle their children while they're in rebellion is critical in demonstrating how well they care for their household. Next, Paul says that he must not be a recent convert. 1 Timothy 3.6, spiritual maturity is required for this role. There's no age requirement. But he must be a mature believer. An immature Christian could either be puffed up with pride because of the status that they have, or could get completely overwhelmed and fearful because of the responsibilities laid on them. Not a recent convert. He must also be well thought of by outsiders. 1 Timothy 3.7 He must have a good reputation. Even his reputation outside of the church matters. Because if a man has a bad reputation outside of the church, then the witness of that church is damaged. And then the next ones are are all going to come from Titus. You can turn to Titus chapter 1. In Titus chapter 1, 8, we see that he must be a lover of good, willingly helping others and seeking their good. It also says he is upright, Titus 1.8. He's living by God's righteous standards according to his word. We also see that he must be holy in Titus 1.8. A better translation would be devout. He's a person who is devoted to Jesus Christ and his word, dedicated to glorifying God, regardless of what others think, regardless of what the culture says. Holy or devout. We also see that he must be disciplined in Titus 1.8. Discipline is, is needed in order to fulfill ministry effectively. And a disciplined man fights against sin. He fights against lust and anger and greed and laziness. And then lastly, in Titus 1.7, we see that he must not be Arrogant. He must not be prideful and so strong-willed that he just steamrolls all over people. All right, men of Calvary, who aspires to the office of elder. Why is it so important that we focus in on these qualifications? Well, because they're the qualifications that the Lord has put in His word so that we might be able to identify the men in which he's called. But we need to keep in mind that it matters less about how gifted a person is or how successful they may have been in business or how long they've been at this church. More importantly, they need to meet these specific character qualifications because what a congregation really needs from their elders is their present holiness, their Christ-like character. That's what a congregation really needs. And so you may look at this list and think, man, who can perfectly live out all of these things? No one. No one can. But there must be a general pattern in the life of an elder that exemplifies these characteristics. And once again, don't let yourself off the hook. Remember what D.A. Carson said. The most remarkable thing about these characteristics are the fact that they are unremarkable. God calls you to the same type of Christ-like living. Elders aren't some sort of super Christian, but they are to be examples to the rest of the church of what the Christian life looks like, lived out. And then also having this type of character enables them to wisely lead the church with the authority that God has given them. And then when you see that in your leaders, in your elders, there should be this heartfelt trust and deep respect and honor towards them. That the congregation would say, as um, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, he encourages them to esteem them highly in love Because of their work. Because after all, an elder will be held accountable to God for how they lead. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as to those who will have to give an account. That's weighty. Okay, so we've looked at the qualifications For an elder. Now let's look at the responsibilities or the role of an elder. As I mentioned before, that word elder, overseer, pastor, those are words that are used interchangeably to refer to the same office, but they also emphasize a different aspect of the work of an elder. The word elder or presbyteros emphasizes the spiritual maturity needed for the office. The word overseer or episkopos implies that an elder provides leadership and direction in the church. And the word pastor, or poimein, speaks to the function of feeding and nurturing and protecting the church, like a shepherd would. But to make it easier for you all to remember, I have placed the roles of an elder into four categories and made sure that they all start with the letter D. So the elders are responsible for doctrine, discipline, direction, and demonstration. Doctrine, discipline, direction, and demonstration. Okay, so first, doctrine. Elders deal with doctrine. The primary biblical qualification that distinguishes them from deacons is that elders must be able to teach and be able to engage with others with doctrine. As we saw in Titus 1.9, elders must be able to instruct in sound doctrine and then also recognize and rebuke those who contradict it. When Paul gathered the Ephesian elders together in Acts 20, he tells them to pay attention to themselves and to the flock of God because false teachers would come from outside and inside the church. Elders protect the doctrine of the church because Satan wants to divide and destroy the church. And sin and false teaching constantly threatens. And so elders are the ones responsible to keep watch. An elder is primarily a teacher. They devote themselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Solid gospel teaching is vital to the health of the church. The word must be preached. And the elders are tasked to preach that word. They are men who know their need for a Savior and point others to him. And they also know sound doctrine. They teach it and they protect it. So they're responsible for doctrine. They're also responsible for discipline. And church discipline sometimes gets a bad rep, right? But discipline is a good thing. Discipline is a healthy thing. Church discipline is both proactive and corrective. Elders discipline through discipleship, through training and encouraging people. They are shepherds. The Bible calls God's people, describes God's people as sheep and the flock of God. Elders are tasked to love and nurture and care for God's flock as a shepherd would. They visit their people. They provide counseling and minister to them in times of sickness and grief. They help their people grow in the knowledge of the Bible. They teach them how to read it and how to obey it. And then they equip them to disciple others in the church and to preach the gospel to those who need Jesus. So that's the proactive aspect of church discipline. The corrective side of it is the fact that sometimes sheep are difficult and they wander off. Like sheep, we are prone to wander and leave the God we love. Sometimes we are difficult. And so elders are tasked to point out sin in a member's life, helping them see their need for repentance and to turn from that sin. And then there are times when elders need to recommend to the church that someone be removed from membership because of unrepentance. Hebrews 13 says that elders are to keep watch over the souls of their people. Doctrine, discipline, and direction. The elders are the overseers and leaders of the church. 1 Peter 5:2, he tells the elders to exercise oversight. This involves decision making administration, and and delegating. They are the ones who wrestle through the decisions before they're being brought to the congregation, even things such as the budget, because they are called to oversee the affairs of the church. They exercise oversight by examining people who desire to become members of the church. They make sure and check and see if they're, they're regenerate believers making sure that they aren't in some sort of disciplined situation from the church that they're coming from. The elders are called to lead the church. In the qualifications, Paul wrote that an elder must be one who manages his household well, and then adds the reason. Right? If he can't manage things at home, how will he care for God's church? The elders are the ones who care for God's church. Elders have authority in the church, and their authority comes from God, not the congregation. Although the congregation affirms the elders' calling and authority, God is the one who grants the authority to the elders. Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 that the Holy Spirit made them overseers. Ephesians 4, verse 11, we see that pastors and teachers are gifts. God gifts elders to the church and gives them authority. And yet, that authority is limited. Elders get their authority from the word of God. And so when they stray from that word, they abandon their God-given authority. Elders are the leaders of the church with limited authority. I will cover more of this in an upcoming sermon, but the congregation as a whole takes part in governing the church. The congregation as a whole is involved in choosing new leaders. They're involved in church discipline. They're involved in deciding on who is and who isn't a member. And they're the ones who hold the leaders of the church accountable to sound doctrine. But at the same time, the members of a church should follow the elders of the church as they obey the scriptures as they faithfully teach them and shepherd them. This is why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So you have doctrine, discipline, direction, and lastly, demonstration. We've already talked about this one, but elders are to demonstrate or model the Christian life. As 1 Peter 5:3 says, not to be domineering over those in your charge, but to be examples to the flock. The author of Hebrews chapter 13 verse 7 says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Elders are men who lead by the example they set. They live Christ-like lives. And we understand from Acts chapter 6 that elders are to focus on the ministry of the Word and prayer, right? The, and we've already talked about this. The ministry of the Word can take many forms, but elders also pray. Elders also pray. They pray for the people in their church to grow in the knowledge of God. They, they pray that the flock would know the magnitude of God's love for them in Christ, They pray for the holiness of the saints and that they would put sin to death by the Spirit. They pray for the weak and wayward members. They pray for the sick and those going through trials. And they consistently pray for the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, can you see why it's important to have a plurality of elders? That's a lot. To have on one man. Caring for the church is too much for one man or two men to handle. A plurality helps the burden of ministry to be shared. In the New Testament, there is never a single leader governing the church alone. We see example after example of a plurality of elders. Both vocational paid pastors and lay elders are called to oversee and lead the flock. And when this happens, it creates balance and adds to pastoral wisdom. No single man possesses all the gifts that are necessary to lead the congregation by themselves. It also provides accountability. Elders are able to hold one another accountable because They all have equal authority. And it also prevents the lead pastor from being the brunt of criticism. Tough decisions can be misperceived and people can assign false motives. Having a plurality of elders can diffuse the us versus the pastor situations that can arise. So you may be thinking, well, then how many elders should we have? Well, if you turn to, just kidding. (laughs) The New Testament doesn't give us a specific number. But a church should appoint as many elders as God gives to it. But how many elders a church has is not as important as who the elders are. And because of that, we're not going to move the men serving as deacons into the role of elder. But Pastor Scott and I and we as a church will need to assess who in this body aspires to the office of elder and who meets these qualifications. And then we'll decide together in electing elders with God's help. I know that's a lot to take in. And I do believe that as we consider these things and head in this direction as a church When we follow the New Testament pattern as closely as we can, there is great wisdom. God gives elders to the church to exemplify Christ-like lives while teaching, shepherding, and leading. And as we end our time here this morning, let us focus our hearts and minds on our great and chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Pastors and elders are imperfect under-shepherds who have limited authority. Elders need to hold their office with humility, realizing their own sinfulness and weakness and dependence upon the redemptive and sustaining work of Christ. He is the one who has purchased the church with his own blood. He is the one who laid down his life for you, to save you from your sins, who loves you, who is watching over you, and who will keep you. He will never fail in shepherding and overseeing his flock. He will never fail at being the perfect example. This is his church, his bride. May we submit to his leadership and look to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time where we have looked at these passages in your word that speak about elders in a local church. I pray that as we consider what you have said in your word, that you would shape our thoughts on church structure and leadership and authority, and that your spirit would work in our hearts that you would keep us unified as we seek to honor you and follow your word more closely. I pray that you would raise up men to serve as elders in this church. Lord, would you give us wisdom in the days ahead? I thank you for this church, for what you have done over the last 56 years. For what you are doing now, And for what you will do. Lord, we pray for the generations that will come after us. That as we make these changes, that what we do now sets them up to flourish in gospel ministry. And we are thankful for Jesus, who is the cornerstone, our good shepherd and savior.